This podcast is brought to you by the Canada Foundation for Innovation. Welcome to the Innovation Now podcast. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Trefford Simpson. Dr. Simpson is a professor of optometry and vision science at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Simpson, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. I don't know if you know this, but you're a bit of a celebrity around here because you're one of the first researchers who ever received a CFI grant. It was back in 1998, and it was project number 51, according to our database, and we have now funded more than 10,000 projects. So, uh, to start off with, can you take us back to 1998 and tell us about that original project, which we like to call project number 51? Wow. Um, so, so I certainly can remember my, my components of it. Um, it was a new opportunities grant. I think that was the, that was the title at the time. Um, and what, what, since the School of Optometry um, was attempting to expand some of its research facilities, um, it focused on the eye. What had become apparent to me at the time was that there was a lot of um, unknown things about how the eyes feel. So, so the, the the basic question. Um, when I'm asked these things, uh, the, the, the basic question I ask is, how do your eyes feel? And that sort of am ambiguity drove um, the research project at the time. And, and so we got an instrument that was then being used primarily to study the, uh, the nerves on the ocular surface of animals. It was, it was called a, a Balmonte pneumatic esthesiometer. Um, devised by a Spanish neurophysiologist who was using this instrument to understand the physiology of the nerves on the cornea, the most sensitive part of the eye. Um, and I was going to buy one and modify it and use it in people. And the other aspect of the CFI that also got funded that, that year was um, to, to measure redness of the eye. And so part of the funding was to try to understand what drove ocular redness. And this interest in corneal pain and redness, did that come out of things you had seen in patients as a clinician, or where did that interest come from? It arose primarily because when I first came to University of Waterloo, I was employed as a researcher at the Center for Contact Lens Research. And um, trying to understand the comfort of contact lenses was a, was a a primary research question that drove a lot of the experimental um, approaches that were being taken at the time. But it's clear that we don't we don't measure that very well. Measure comfort in people and 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 how the discomfort that they experience is quantified. And so what I wanted to do was to devise a method in people to be used in patients um, that would allow us to understand the neurophysiological machinery that sat on the, uh, on the surface of the eye, again, particularly focused at the time on contact lens wear, um, although my primary interest is not, primary interest is still not specifically lens wear and is more just to try to understand in humans how the ocular surface processes the information. When people think about pain in their eyes, they could think, oh, my eyes are so sore. I've been looking at my computer all day. But that's not the kind of pain or discomfort that yeah. you're talking about. Could you tell yeah. me where is this pain coming from that you're studying? Yeah. So, so the, the, the kind of pain that, that people have from using their eyes, so the discomfort that's associated from reading too much or um, focusing when the light is poor, for example, a, a mild headache is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the kind of dryness that people might experience on the surface of their eyes 
Um, their eyes can sting, their eyes can burn. That's the sensation that I'm trying to um, understand. And, and that sensation arises from, the, from nerves in the tissue on the eye, the, the sensitive part of the eye that sits in front of the colored part of your eye is called the cornea. And there is a series of nerves that sit in the cornea very close to the surface, not exposed, but close to the surface. And then also the conjunctiva, which is the tissue that's sort of the white of your eye. Um, and so I'm looking at how the information is processed by the cornea and how the information is processed by the conjunctiva. So there are these tiny little nerves inside the surface of your eye that are picking up stimuli from around the atmosphere, from around you all the time. Mm. And that's what you're studying. Yes, yes. This sounds like a dumb question, but why can't we see those nerves if they're right in front of our eyes? So that's, that's a great question. Um, and and the, so it ends up that this these nerves you actually can occasionally see. The only part of your body on the surface that you can see nerves, but mostly they're invisible because you don't want the light that's going through your cornea and going through your pupil and getting to the back of your eye that's giving rise to vision. You don't want that light interfered with by nerves. And so those nerves are generally invisible, but we can see them with a variety of equipments. And in some people, you can actually see them with the naked eye because the covering that these nerves have that disappear when they go into the cornea, some, in some people the covering on, on those nerves is still there, so you can actually see their nerves in white light with enough magnification. So there's a covering on these nerves that makes them invisible? There's a covering on the nerves that actually would make them visible, but then that, that covering goes away when they come into the eye. These are nerves which are in the front of your eye that could disrupt vision really badly. There are a lot of nerves. This is um, among the most densely innervated tissue in the body. So there are a lot of nerves. Um, and so if, you, if they were not invisible, they would make vision really bad. And so they're invisible. And, and, and it's not just the nerves that are invisible. What happens is that this cornea it also doesn't have blood vessels in it. And, and another reason for that is, uh, the reason for that is also you don't want blood vessels interfering with vision. And so the blood vessels end just at the edge of this clear part of your eye. That's incredible. Oh. Yep. But then how do those cells function without blood? So the amazing thing is that this cornea is covered by t the tear film. And the tear film gets oxygen from the atmospheric air. And that oxygen diffuses into your cornea and nourishes the cells. And also there is oxygen that's obtained from the liquid that's on the inside of your eye. Um, and so the oxygen diffuses in and carbon dioxide diffuses out. Those are incredible adaptations. Amazing. Unbelievable mechanisms. Fantastic. So you've been studying these nerves with the pneumatic acetheometer for 20 years. Can you describe to me what the pneumatic acetheometer looks like and what it does? So the CFI one we have really uses, it's got two tanks of, of medical grade compressed air. Um, one is just atmospheric gas and the other is, is carbon dioxide. Um, the, the, the pressure is built up and then is released through a series of valves and blows a little puff of air from, a, from about five millimeters away from your eye over an area I'm going to say is roughly a millimeter squared onto the clear part of your eye. So that's the part of your eye in front of the colored part of your eye, so in front of your iris, which is called the cornea, or the white part of your eye, which is called the conjunctiva. Again, we know almost nothing about, about how those, the nerves process that information in, in people. Um, and we, if we add carbon dioxide to that, comp, to that, um, to that air, the, the carbon dioxide dissolves in the tears and forms tiny amounts of, of acidity, and it burns. And so it stings a little bit. Very local, it's very easy to overcome. You just blink and it goes away. 
but we have special sensors that sense chemical changes in our tear film. So we have a way to measure mechanical effects, how much is the pressure that the air is blowing on your eye. We can decide if it's warm or cool, so I can control the temperature of the air, and I can also control the carbon dioxide concentration in the air, therefore how much does it burn or sting. So we have sets of nerves which respond to the mechanical and the chemical stimuli, and a separate set of nerves which respond to the cooling of the stimulus. What purpose do these really sensitive, densely packed nerves on our eye surface serve? It's probably because you want your cornea to not be damaged so that you can't see clearly. So that's probably why we have these um, nerves at this higher density. You know, they control the local structure. So in addition to being able to sense the environment, they also do um, local things like, for example, control the structure of the of the surface cells on the cornea to be sure that it's smooth. They, the cooling neurons most likely respond, uh, are, are there to, to detect changes in the tear film because it's actually the smooth tear film which produces the perfect optics that we need to see clearly. Um, and they do other local things. So, so there are reflexes that are driven by these neurons, um, part of which we're studying right now. So, sorry, you said the tear form? The tear form. What yeah. is that? So the, the, the layer of liquid that sits on the, on, the, on the eye is, in fact, what has the optical effect of the cornea. It's not actually the tissue. It's actually the layer of water that sits on the surface that refracts the light. And so we need to be, have that form as optimally as possible. And the cooling nerves, are the nerves that detect the cooling, are probably the nerves responsible for maintaining the perfect tear film, perfect smooth optical surface that sits on top of the cornea. So these nerves not only warn us to protect our eye if there's something dangerous out there, but they actually trigger all kinds of reflexes we're not even aware of. Oh yeah, no, so, so part of what we're doing now um, involves trying to understand the circuitry of those reflexes. So for example, when, you, when your eyes get red because your eyes are uncomfortable, we're trying to understand that. But there are other things that happen. Your pupils change, for example, when, you're, when, you're, when you experience pain. And not just a painful ocular uh, experience. You, if somebody um, pinched your neck excessively, for example, your pupils would, would change size. So, so these are um, reflex circuits that exist. Um, we're, we're particularly interested in the red one um, because that's uh, uh, something that, that is commonly experienced by patients. And trying to understand that um, is a research priority that we have. You started your research on these ocular nerves in 1998. Uh, what was the state of knowledge about those nerves back then, and how has it progressed to what you're telling me about yeah. today? So what prompted me at the time was really what, what I thought was just a, a big, gigantic hole in our knowledge. We, we really didn't know very much at all about um, how people sense the environment. Up, up till then, the, the basic instruments that existed were things that required the eye to be touched. So either a titanium pin was pushed onto the cornea or a nylon thread was pushed on the cornea. Um, and so both of those things obviously sound painful because they obviously are painful. Um, and so we really didn't understand any of that neural machinery. So those mechanical sensors, those chemical sensors, or those cooling sensors. And this anesthesiometer gave us the chance to understand those nerves in a, in a more complete way. We know about the neurophysiology, again, in non-primate animals, and we didn't know anything about what happens in humans. Um, the, the basic experiments that we did at the beginning was really to see if 
the way humans process sensory information could be explained by our understanding of those nerves in cats and rabbits. And it ends up that in many ways they, the sensing seems like it's driven by those same sets of neurons, although in other ways um, it's perhaps a bit more complicated. Is there anything specific to humans that really stands out for you that's not seen in other animals? Um, th yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I keep saying that's a great question. Um, it's, it's a bit difficult to say, and, and, and part of the reason is that the responses in other animals that have, t that have typically been done of pain processing from the eye um, have been to understand the nerves, and that's really not a perceptual response. And so we don't actually know, other than, than very kind of primitive studies that have to do with is the animal closing its eye or are there withdrawal reflexes? We don't really understand the perception in other animals the way we understand the perception in human beings. Um, and that's really part of the scientific problem that we have is to try to relate this very basic physiology in non-primate animals to this very complicated thing we get in people asking them, for example, to use words to account for what a stimulus feels like on the eye. And right now, I don't know that there are vast differences um, and I don't know that we've um, got anything that, that's particularly peculiar, except in people it's complicated. And mm -hmm. I don't know how that would apply to the cornea of a rabbit, say. Yeah, interesting. I'm a bit curious about contact lenses. It's something people can relate to. You know, people put their contact lens in, and by the end of the day, they're, sure. they're all dry. Yeah. So is it possible to design a more comfortable contact lens, do you think? Contact lens companies have spent a huge amount of money trying to do that. And since I've been working on it for 20 years, really the, the difficulty with the senses, the, the sensory effects of contact lenses on the ocular surface really haven't been resolved very, very effectively. So there's still a large proportion of people who have, so as many as half of, of patients who wear contact lenses have symptoms of dryness that emerge at the end of the day or, or after a relatively short amount of time wearing contact lenses. Um, the, the, the problem is that it's, in, in many ways, it's a very simple thing. You, you have to have a lens which sits on an eye, which doesn't produce overstimulation of these nerves, which are in the cornea and the conjunctiva. And you have to have a, an, um, a contact lens surface that allows an eye to blink normally. Um, and right now, no one's designed a lens or a treatment for a lens to do that effectively. So patients still struggle. In many environments, we're in a warm, dry, um, artificially warmed environment that's not very humid. And, um, and so many patients who wear contact lenses in, in this kind of environment struggle. What, what would the perfect contact lens be? Yeah, so I mean, I, again, again it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very simple thing. It needs to not be uncomfortable on the ocular surface. So the back surface needs to sit on the cornea and the conjunctiva and not excessively stimulate those nerves. And the front surface needs to be wettable in such a way that when the eye blinks, it doesn't grab onto the lens and move it too much or grab onto the eyelid and make the eyelid feel uncomfortable. So does it have to do with the material that's used? It's the material itself um, or how the, the tissue interacts with the material, so the biocompatibility of the material. And there's one little tiny wrinkle, and that has to do that with the fact that this lens sits in that tear film that I spoke about earlier, and so it also needs to be biocompatible with the tear film. So not, not produce inflammatory responses. The redness was, I, I mentioned that earlier, is something that we're working on. I'm not producing uh, uh, 
a redness response, which would probably be part of an inflammatory response. Um, and the, the, again, the, the main thing is for it to be biocompatible with the tissue and not make that lens slide around or interact with the lid or the cornea. Hmm. The holy grail is still out there. Ah, yeah, no, no Nobel Prize for contact lens. Yeah, company, big, big money. In your current research, what are the big questions that you're trying to answer? Um, so, so I think I think the the we have a fairly good understanding of the sensory processing of these stimuli in adult humans. There is a gigantic lack of understanding um, about what happens with aging, and there is a gigantic lack of understanding about how these sensory processes emerge, how they develop, and so that is understanding things in children. Um, not in children, perhaps even earlier in infancy. And so, and then also um, understanding things in large scale. So our experiments have been typically on small numbers of people in our lab, and so we don't know in the population what the distribution of sensory processing is, for example. It, and is it something that we should be concerned about because there might be diseases of how, senses, or how the sensory processing occurs, there might be special treatments that w would emerge. But again, right now, the, the population that we know nothing about is the aging population, and the population we know nothing about is the young population. So those will be two big questions in the next series of grants that I'll be writing will be, will be part of those grant proposals. Okay, well, we'll look forward to receiving those and hopefully supporting your research in the future. I, I hope so. That would be great. Thanks for coming in to speak with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Find more research stories like this at innovation.ca slash stories. And subscribe to the Canada Foundation for Innovation through your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate, review, and share our podcast. It really helps others to find it.